Father, help us this morning. These are tough words. And we need your spirit. You ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Whoa, that's a little hot there, Gil. Or the screenplay. It's a fun story. Provides a fitting illustration to get us started this morning. The main character is one of my favorite in all of um, theater, Tevia. A Jewish man living in the Tsarist Russia, turn of the century. The heart of the film is... Tevia's struggle to accept the cultural changes that are turning his world upside down, especially through the non-arranged marriages of three of his five daughters. We empathize with his pain as we watch tradition, the glue that held his little world together, begin to dissolve before his very eyes. His oldest daughter, a sweet girl named Seitel is in love with Model, a poor tailor, and no one knows it except the two of them. Tevi has made a deal with the butcher of the town, Laser Wolf, for Seitel's hand. Of course, when Seitel is informed of her parents' choice of a husband, she's horrified, begs, pleads with her father, don't make me marry Laser Wolf. I'm not sure I want to marry a guy with the first name Laser either, uh, because she's really in love with the tailor, Model. And after all, as the movie tells us, they gave each other a pledge. Reluctantly, not wanting to see his daughter miserable her whole life, Tevia breaks his arrangement with the butcher and lets his daughter marry the timid tailor. A second daughter, her name is Hoddle, and her affections soon become attached to a young, outspoken man named Perchik. Perchik is motivated by a desire to preserve freedom through revolution, and as a result of his actions, he's thrown into prison. He is shipped to Siberia. When he writes to request that Hodel come to him, she chooses to leave her family and travel across the frozen wasteland to join him in marriage. By this time, Tevia has reluctantly began to accept this new practice of a man and a woman choosing for themselves who they should marry. But even Hodel's engagement could not prepare him for his final daughter's choice. Shava, the youngest daughter, in the story whose affections turn towards a fellow lover of books, a young Russian man named Fiedka. However, there's a vast gulf, an infinite difference between her choice and the choice of her two older sisters. They married fellow Jews. Fiedka, however, is a Gentile, forbidden territory for a young Jewish girl. Her father's command not to marry outside the faith falls on stubborn ears, Shava and Fiedka elope. Tevia learns of this, walking in the field behind his plow as Golda, his wife, runs toward him shouting. He asks what is wrong. She informs him of their youngest daughter's marriage. And as a father, he's absolutely bewildered. The story gives us a reminder that family and faith can be difficult to reconcile. Today's uh, sermon I've titled Family Priorities. I, I want you to know I wanted to do Family Feud so bad, but uh, it... Um, um, Brian doesn't like that kind of stuff, so I just sneak it in here. with Oh, oh man, he is in here. All right. um, it's part of our series on persevering in our faith, struggles, hurdles that are in front of us. We've done 
sinfulness, suffering, persecution, work. Last week, Pastor Greg helped us think about the hurdle of retirement and how some view that as just a a period of life where you can check out and become self-indulgent. Today, we'll be studying the hurdle of family and jumping into Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, if I can, we're jumping into the middle of a passage here, so let me give you just a little context, if I could, just to help you with this. Chapter 10 begins with the list of the 12 tribes whom Jesus chose. It's based on the number of tribes of Israel in the Old Testament times. The rest of the chapter contains his instruction to the 12. They, they have been with Jesus for some time, but they are about to go out on their first little missionary journey. In verses 5 through 16, they get a lot of those specific instructions, and then the instructions get broader, beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 42, where we find ourselves this morning, and it's broader. The disciples are charged to proclaim the same message of the kingdom that John the Baptist had been proclaiming, that Jesus was preaching. And in the second half of the chapter, there is a lot of family strife described in verses 17 through 34, right before our section. It foreshadows our text this morning, which begins in 1035. Jesus wants to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he sends his disciples out. He is warned in chapter 7 of false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And here in chapter 10, he tells his disciples that they are about to be sent out as sheep among wolves. Can you feel the heat here? The tension? The danger? He knows there will not be a complete and universal reception of his message. This is sad. As his people are persecuted and even killed for his namesake, he says, they will testify to his supreme worth that Jesus is the Messiah he's worth dying for. Somehow, they will be enabled by this clear word to overcome human fears, to stand against human powers, even to death. The followers of Jesus will also declare the supreme worth of God and of the Messiah Jesus as they leave home and give their lives to service, announcing His kingdom, demonstrating their devotion to Christ to be greater than their devotion to Father, Mother, son or daughter, here in chapter 10, where we are now. This demonstration condemns the idolatry of family. In fact, it condemns any idolatry of exalting a human relationship over one's obligation, one's duty, and one's devotion to God. And that's where we jump into Matthew 10 this morning. That's the context where we come to. Now, you might be thinking like I was when I got back from sabbatical and got this assignment and thought, oh, goody, I get to preach on the hurdle of family. I don't like this assignment. Family isn't a hurdle. It's a blessing, right? It's complicated. It's complicated by the curse of sin that we live under the depravity that exists in the heart of every human person on earth, and what was meant to be good, anything that God meant to be good, can be manipulated, twisted, and perverted into evil. Here's a few examples I thought of maybe to warm your hearts up and bring you to the point of hearing God's word. Some people are so desperate 
to have male-female companionship in this life that it reaches the point of idolatry. They end up worshiping their spouse, their partner, because they prioritize them over Jesus. And it does not go well in their faith. It becomes a hurdle. I've seen this. You have too. Some families turn away from the faith because their children don't follow Jesus. And it's just too painful for them to have that kind of disruption in the family. So Jesus just fades away so we can have peace, so we can remain close. Many people find themselves married to a spouse, a third thought, who's not a follower of Jesus. I'm so thankful that I don't have that experience, but I pray for many of you who have that. They are tied together in a relationship where one person instinctively pulls one way and another person instinctively pulls another way. They're in two different kingdoms. It's a hurdle to faithfulness and perseverance. I just have a note here to, to stop and just speak from my heart. If you're single here today, don't do that. Don't do that. I know the desire to be married. I know the desire to have a, a lifelong companion. But uh, to, to link yourself together... The Bible would describe it as unequally yoked, using the image of oxen. And so you just imagine trying to farm a field with one ox hooked in forward and one ox hooked in backward. (laughs) That just sounds like a really frustrating experience. And that is the image that is presented to us. It's not worth it. All right, on the basis of what we've summarized here quickly, let's focus in and let's think about a few questions that I want you to think about that I've been thinking about as I approach this passage. Number one, in general, do the spiritual needs of our world, do the spiritual needs in your community, do the spiritual needs in your family, do they compel you to action or do they make you feel helpless? You see, this is a passage about the needs of the world and the mission we've received from God. The disciples are being sent out. This is something you should consider as you hear this morning. Number two, how would you describe your attitude toward unbelieving coworkers, unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving friends, unbelieving family members? What would keep you from feeling compassion for them? My thought is, people's greatest need in the world is to know Jesus, not to stop annoying you. We just read the text. I want to read it again one more time because it's short. Listen to the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We'll go verse by verse here in a minute, but let me summarize what I think Matthew's point is. And let me tell you what my simple argument is this morning. Matthew's point, Jesus calls his followers to a costly mission. It will involve suffering and opposition. But the sovereign care and protection of God are enough. They are sufficient to sustain our faith. 
We are being called, Matthew says, to a costly mission. It will involve suffering and opposition. But God's sovereign care and protection are enough. They are sufficient to sustain our faith. That's what Matthew is writing. What do I want you to hear today? Make following Jesus the highest priority of your life. Make following Jesus the highest priority of your life. This commitment will forsake the idolatry of exalting any human relationship higher than one's relationship with the Lord. I have two main points, very simply, and at the end I have four thoughts about application. Point number one, be loyal to your heavenly Father more than your earthly family. Pretty straightforward. That's what I just told you I was going to tell you. I'm good, now I'm going to tell you it. I'm going to remind you at the end. Be loyal to your heavenly Father more than your earthly father. I'm drawing this from verses 34 through 37, obviously. In verse 34, up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has given all kinds of comforting teaching, many good actions, kind actions, healings. Jesus is just on the scene being a, 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 a balm, a, 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 a kind and helpful teacher. He's helping those who've been oppressed in various ways. But these words in chapter 10 make it clear that everything is not rosy. Everything is not sweet. Everything is not easy for those who serve Jesus. And this is now made very clear. You might find it startling, these words, to find Jesus saying that his followers should not think he came to bring peace. That should startle you for a moment. You should think about that. It is unsettling for us as his followers to hear him say, do not think I came to bring peace, but a sword. Now Jesus in one sense did come to bring peace, but Jesus is concerned that we would not be seeking the wrong kind of peace. It's possible. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 6, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The prophets of that day were saying, everything's okay, guys. I know you're not following the Lord sincerely. I know he's prophesied that the foreign nations are coming, but it's okay. False peace. To balance that, there is clearly a sense in which Jesus brings peace. Yes? Amen? I mean, amen. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are redeemed and forgiven. We are, the hostility with which we had with God is gone. But the peace Jesus came to bring is not simply the absence of strife here. It is a peace that means the overcoming of sin through the cross, the bringing in of the salvation of God. But this does mean that war with evil and hostility against those who support the ways of evil continues. So it is in this vein that Jesus says, far from peace, his presence does not bring only peace, but conflict. It brings a sword. 
Now the sword, of course, is not meant literally in the sense that we would carry them and act in warfare. It's more of a metaphor. It's an obvious symbol of conflict. It's a stern reminder to the fact that to follow Jesus, who again, we as his followers, love to call from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the prince of peace, sometimes does mean the opposite. Disunity and conflict. A sword divides. So does Jesus. So does the truth which Jesus came to bring. In fact, the Word of God, which Jesus uh, personifies, is said to be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word and love for Jesus is more important than family unity. But of course, his coming presents a challenge to which many people respond differently. And this is an emotional issue. You hear it in my voice this morning already. Because many who oppose Jesus do so passionately. And so do those who become his followers. And where strong feelings of opposition are held, conflict is inevitable. That's verse 34. Do not think I came to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Verse 35 continues, and he gives this reason for this kind of conflict. The kind of conflict Jesus has in mind is brought out with references to family. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah chapter 7, verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You see the exact same family relationships that are chronicled in exactly the same order there. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. If I could summarize this for you, Michael laments the circumstances of his day. He is searching vainly for an upright person. Micah compares himself to a vine dresser who enters the vineyard late in the day, late in the season, and there's no fruit. The leaders of his day conspired together to get what they wanted, had exploited the people. No one could be trusted. And Christ uses this backdrop as an illustration to commission his disciples. Let's look at each one of the examples here. Father. In that day and age, this was the fundamental family loyalty. The father was the head of the household. The loyalty owed to him was above most loyalties, probably above all. To bring division between father and son is to offend one of the most deep-seated convictions in the the minds of the hearers of the words of Jesus. And just as the son is set against the father, a daughter is set against her mother. The mother is the most important person in the female section of the household. She exercised a headship that was similar to that of the father over the whole household. Division among the women was another serious split. And it doesn't stop there. No in-law jokes here. Daughter-in-law, I have two. He's a beautiful, welcome member of a family. Upon marriage, this would be expected that she would enter fully into her role as a member of the husband's family. She would look to her mother-in-law for guidance and affection. And to have division here means that the bride is left alone. Jesus makes it clear that nobody could believe that the possibility of division would pass you by. You are exempt from it. The fundamental unit, the family unit would be divided. 
And this will affect everyone. He continues on in verse 36 and makes this statement that is just all-encompassing. It's summed up in this general proposition that one's enemies are going to come right out of one's own household. The last place. The last place where you would expect hostility. Jesus is emphasizing that from a human point of view, following the right way can be a lonely thing. Divisions and oppositions may well arise where they are least expected. It is impossible to predict how people will respond to the gospel. And where they oppose it, many oppose it bitterly. And they extend that bitter opposition to the people who have accepted it. Have you felt that before? Enemies is not too strong a word. Just think about how long it took for this to begin to occur in human history. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. The Lord had no regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The first family conflict. And we could give so many, many more examples, but we'll move right to the most heartfelt example that Jesus would experience through the betrayal of his dear friend and disciple Jesus. A disciple Judas. In two messianic psalms, the pain and betrayal Jesus would experience is prophesied. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, verse 12 and 13. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal my companion, my familiar friend. You see, Jesus understood this, both past, present, and his coming future. And just to drive the point home, in verse 37, Jesus just keeps piling on the weight. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, what binds families together? It's, of course, our loyal love that binds us and unites us together. Therefore, Jesus now moves just to this topic of love. Whoever loves me less than loves father and mother. You see, the love, love, love relationship is what Jesus is describing. Jesus rightly assumes that there will be love between parents and children. This is not a problem. (laughs) There should be. But Jesus claims for himself a higher place in his disciples' affections than they would give to their nearest and dearest on earth. This occurs in a society that taught that it was a horrible thing to put anyone higher than one's parents. Do you understand that? In America, it's a little different here, but we have to hear this in context. 
No one. Loves is the significant word. It points to the warmest affection. Jesus doesn't command his followers to love their parents or children. He assumes they will love one another. He is concerned that they must not value their attachment to the members of their families so highly that Jesus himself is pushed into the background. This has so many important implications for an understanding of who Jesus is, what he did on the cross. No person has the right to claim a love higher than that of parents for children. And it is only because of who Jesus is that he can look for and seek such love. These words imply that he is more than merely a human teacher, more than just a great leader. We must not lack this love for him or he says that we are not worthy of him. Other translations would say, is not fit to be my disciple, not a true follower. Friends, don't forget, Jesus knew what it was to experience this kind of misunderstanding in the family. In Mark chapter 3, his own family thought he was insane. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is not asking from his followers something that he did not know for himself. Two chapters later in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew will include these words. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Jesus suffered and understands what he is asking. When the scripture tells us that we have a high priest who is not unsympathetic to our sufferings, it is true and amen. I'm just going to move through. Remember, I have two main points, and I'm going to move to a little bit more application at the end. Some of it's coming out here, and I know you're feeling it. Number two, last two verses, be willing to sacrifice your physical life for the sake of eternal rewards. Be willing to sacrifice your physical life for the sake of eternal rewards. I, has, I, I really struggled with how to phrase this. Uh, physical life, comforts of life, purpose of life. The reason I struggle is that right now I just don't think any of us are really being called to, give, to be martyrs. Anyone literally feel in danger in your life of death because of your faith in Jesus here in America yet? I don't think so. Jesus calls us to be willing to die for him. But the truth is, the struggle is to live for him, isn't it? And yet part of that comes in some type of tandem of paradox. Verse 38 Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The demand for loyalty here is further brought out by relating it to taking up a cross. For us, it's a remote metaphor. I know we have it behind me. But Jesus' hearers were people who literally watched men take up their cross. You see, anyone who was condemned to be crucified was required to carry the cross beam to the place of execution. The people hearing this knew that when this happened, the man went off with a little, ba- little band of Roman soldiers. He was on a one-way journey. 
he would not be back. Incidentally, this is the first time that Jesus references cross to his disciples. For them, taking up the cross meant the highest form of repudiating the claims of self. Self-centeredness, self-protection, self-aggrandizement, pride. The person who took up a cross had died to that life. Jesus demands from everyone who follows him nothing less than a death to self. Now I know it doesn't happen in this life and I know we don't often face it, but it is the kind of question that is so rhetorically loud in this that I will just say it for you. Would you die for the name of Jesus? Would you take your cross? That's what Jesus says. I know you're not being asked to, but there is a, there is a submission of will that can happen there, that there can be a spiritual growth in your process, in your mind and soul, when you say yes. And you tell the Lord that in sincerity. But then the con trusting and and paradoxical truth that comes right after that is so beautiful in verse 39 whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it you see how those are related he's talking about losing your life how through crucifixion through carrying your cross and then he says but if you lose it you'll find it but if you hang on to it you will lose it this is a wonderful and rewarding paradox that brings out the truth that the person who concentrates on getting the best now by that very fact, loses it. To find life in the sense of the things that delight us in the here and now is to lose it in the deeper sense. This points to the total loss of the only life that is worth living in contrast to the empty pursuit of that which has no permanence. It cannot last beyond the 80 or 90 years we have here on earth. The other side of the coin is that the person who decides that the life that is fully given to the service of Jesus, to the commission and the mission, will find life in the fullest sense. That person will live a fuller life here and now and can face eternity without fear. One final thought. Jesus says, for my sake. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is important. Jesus is not suggesting, as I would do, that I should weigh up the merits and demerits of life here and the life in the hereafter and kind of weigh it out on the grounds that I will get more out of it this way. More for me. It's better for me if I live for Jesus. That is still selfish living. It means the loss of real life. The life that matters is the life that for the sake of Christ, that the love of Christ compels us, that because of the wonderful ministry of Jesus on the cross on our behalf, that would be compelled by love, that for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' glory, for Jesus' notoriety, would follow Him to the cross. Pure motives regarding the service of God and one's neighbors. What do we do? Four quick thoughts. The two verses before here I'm bringing in for this first thought. Confess Jesus publicly. 
Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. I don't have a ton of time left. I, somehow last week I was early, and this week I'm pushing it. But um, I don't know what it means for you where. But I know Jesus wants you to confess him publicly. When we follow Christ, we don't sit back in silence. We make it known to other people that we belong to him. Do the people around you at work and school know you're identified with Christ? You identify with him all the time? It's incredible to think that one day all those who publicly identify with Christ will stand before the Father in heaven and Jesus will publicly identify with them. When you in this life say, I'm with him, one day he will say, I'm with you. Number two from our text, love Jesus supremely. Love Jesus supremely. Not only do we confess him publicly, this is Jesus' point in these verses when he speaks of loving him more than, his, than our own family members. Love for Jesus should be superior to a love for a parent or even the love one has for a spouse. These loves are temporal. Our relationship with Christ is eternal. John Bunyan's chapter 1 of Pilgrim's Progress gives us a very convicting and sad account. At the very beginning of Pilgrim's life, before he even fully understands, he has a burden, he, he, he's trying to figure this out. He goes to run from the, to, to, to safety. And, and, and Bunyan writes, So I saw in my dream that Christian began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, who previously had made fun of him and had not had not received his admonitions. When his own wife and children, perceiving his departure, began to cry out to him so that he might return, but the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Number three, take ultimate risks. Take the right risk. Take the good risk. Carry your cross. If you don't take up your cross, you're not worthy of Jesus. This is the first mention of the word cross. It would have evoked this picture of violent, degrading death. Jesus commanding, demanding total commitment from us, even to physical death, making this call to full surrender. The same message we're to proclaim to others. This is not the only place. There. I'll skip a few cross-references here. Those who come to Jesus with self-renouncing faith, self-renouncing faith, Receive true and eternal life. And lastly, friends, seek the highest rewards. Seek the highest rewards. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but to lose your life for my sake will find it. At the end of the paragraph, we are urged to take and seek the highest rewards. The, 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 this is what Jesus wants us to do. Pick up our cross. The end result is more than worth it. I need to invite the praise team back to the platform. As they're coming, and uh, if the guys for our leadership team would uh, organize themselves as well as we'll be thinking about communion here. The hymn writer City of Light have written um, a beautiful song that speaks of this. Minor days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with Him. But I look for worldly treasure and I forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. 
For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. Mine are tears in time of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven. Strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes His work in me. Mine are days here as a stranger, a pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for His name. But mine is armor for the battle, strong enough to last the war, and He has said He will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. In order to move from a comfortable Christianity to a Matthew 10 kind of Christianity, uh, there are two prayers we ought to be praying. And I close with this on your behalf. And hear this as a prayer from me over you. God, give us a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. We need help to see what God sees. We need to see it in the people right around us, the people we work with, the people who we live among, the people who surround us in this world, those in our own families, those ones that we are burdened and sad over their lack of faithfulness and fidelity to the faith. All of them, every single person around us and around the world will spend the next trillion years either in heaven or hell. God, give us a supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost. And secondly, our, our, our prayer should be this. God, give us sacrificial obedience to this commission of Christ. Obedience to the commission of Christ is the right response to those who celebrate communion with Christ. This instruction of Jesus requires great risk, but the reward is more than worth it, both for us and those who might come to Christ through our efforts. Father, may this word go deep in our hearts and grow. In Jesus' name, amen.